This is a special call to action to our listeners to financially support this podcast and spread awareness of the Native Plants Dialogue through exclusive Plant Native Nebraska merch at plant-native-nebraska.myspreadshop.com. Wear our designs in your best effort to convert your friends and neighbors, or just simply look cool. Thank you for your continued support in our quest to help Nebraska plant native. Hello, and welcome to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Barlman. If you are new to tuning in, this show is for native plant enthusiasts, aspiring gardeners, suburban homeowners, growers, and thinkers anxious to learn more about growing Native American plants and creating habitat for wildlife. If this sounds like you, you've come to the right place. In today's episode, Planning Natives, Not Just a Spring Affair, we chat with Bob Henriksen, the Horticulture Program Coordinator for the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum about upcoming events, his picks for a rain garden, historical uses of prairie plants, and much, much more. Join us as we dive into some diverse talking points. We're excited to share this with you. Thanks for listening. How you doing? (laughs) Well, thank you, Bob Henriksen, for being here with us today um, and sharing your expertise, because I know you have loads of expertise. My pleasure. Yeah, great to be here. Yeah, awesome. Um, so to start out, if you could tell us a little about what you do at the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum or just a little background about the NSA, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. The Nebraska Statewide Arboretum, gosh, we're celebrating our 45th anniversary. So that's pretty cool for a, a, a little nonprofit like ourselves. Nebraska Statewide Arboretum is just that we're a statewide arboretum of a network of arboretum sites from Falls City, Nebraska to Shatter, Nebraska, and all points in between. There's over right around 100 sites right now, and we help these sites create arboretums. And arboretums are just collection of plants for educational purposes, right? So we want to get it's basically bringing the arboretum to the people rather than the people coming to say one specific arboretum. It's more of a a local flair, if you will. And my job specifically with the state of Arboretum, I'm horticulture program coordinator. So I coordinate our horticulture program, which involves growing plants. So I'm a plant grower um, and marketer, seller, whatever you want to call it. But uh, yeah, so we we really specialize and have been specializing for the last 45 years in native plants. We've been really um, pushing them, promoting them, trying to get people on board. And and I can tell you, Stephanie, back when this started back in the 80s, and I wasn't here with the NSA, but they were actually testing plants that we consider kind of like shrug your shoulders and say, well, yeah, little blue stem, side oats, grama. But back in the 80s, those plants weren't even being planted in the landscape yet. So people really didn't know how they would perform in say a typical home gardener landscape setting. And that's kind of, I think where the statewide arboretum came in, actually putting those plants in public places as demonstrations. So then people could go and see, so we could also learn and find out how do they perform. Mm, That's so wild to me that that it's really only since like the eighties or the nineties that these things even started being considered. And then right. 
you know, I really hadn't heard anything about native plants until maybe like four or five years ago. And before then, I had I'd never heard that term. I had never had an experience where anyone told me about anything that grew here naturally. So right. I find that fascinating. It's it's too bad that it took so long for people to appreciate what's basically in our backyard. Yeah, you know, and, and honestly, a lot of times from a plant sense, the grass was always greener on the other side. It, Europeans were fascinated by our native plants. A lot of the, not a lot, but a number of cultivars in the trade, for example, some goldenrod cultivars came out of Europe. And goldenrod, for example, they loved the plant, so planted it in Europe. And guess what? It's naturalized all over the place. So it's become a introduced weed for them. <laughs> and same thing with us. Well, our founding fathers, the, the ancestors, the people that came here, they were familiar with plants from their home country, right? So that's what they felt like they should plant. They did yeah. not even know. So I think it started as long back as that. Um, and then when you say native plants, people kind of go, well, what does that mean? right or mm -hmm. you know i think they may think of one or two and usually the one that comes to mind is canada goldenrod and if you just you know the canadian goldenrod solidago canadensis can be kind of a thug in the garden and be kind of aggressive right and so everybody kind of gravitates and says well that's all native plants right they're all aggressive and they're all big and they're all you know will take over my garden no that's not the case at all you're generalizing people yeah, there's so many to choose from for the garden. And that's really what kind of got me going with them. My interest in native plants started way back when I worked for the I, I worked for landscape services on UNL campus. And we were certainly planting native plants. What we had is what we called the Prairie Three mix that we would use in our uh, streetscape planting. So that space between the street and the sidewalk or the sidewalk and a parking lot that often had a little strip of soil that not much would grow in. And that was my first introduction was uh, the horticulturist above me, you know, I would do the planting and the prairie thee was little blue stem, blue grama and side oats grama. And we would mix those three grasses, just a random repetition in these designs. And, and I can tell you they lasted, well, the plants didn't die, progress took them out. You know, maybe a parking lot was expanded or whatever and they were taken out. So that was the first introduction. And then I moved on to the state fairgrounds here in Lincoln before it moved to Grand Island. I inherited a wildflower garden. So that really kind of spurred me because I was not familiar with the names. And I took it upon myself saying, I'm going to try to find, source, plant as many different wildflowers as I can plant. And it ended up becoming a wildflower garden rather than per se a prairie garden. Mm -hmm. And that's what I would tell people. If you're interested in prairie gardening, you know, grasses should be included. They don't have to be, mind you, but man, they just make your prairie garden look that much better rather than a straight up perennial garden with no grasses. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. How I started out is I, I started out making a cottage style garden. I wanted flowers, flowers everywhere. Yeah. And I really resisted grasses for a long time. And I don't regret that now, but I've learned enough now where I'm like, it's kind of like you're passing up the lottery when you pass up adding grasses to the garden because right. they're weed suppressors um, right. and they provide contrast. So it makes you, you'd, you'd think it would take away from the flowers, but it actually doesn't. It makes them stand out and it adds some versatility yeah. through the seasons, like especially fall time. Those grasses, yeah. that's like the time they start, the, the start of the show. 
So it's Amen. just to pass yeah. them up. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't exactly. do it anymore. And I definitely try to convince people if you're scared about grasses, you know, maybe start with little blue stem, maybe right. start with blue grama or right. purple love grass or, you know, right. something that, you know, nine out of 10 people are going to like, right. right. Um, and not be overwhelmed right. by. So, right. um, tell us about, I know that, um, I've been talking to some friends about it recently, the spring affair event that's coming up. Yeah. Um, I know I've got a ticket to the preview party, but if you could give us some more details about it, uh, maybe for people who haven't even heard of it yet. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Our annual spring affair plant sale. We just had, came from a meeting for a planning meeting for that and everything's on track with our planning, which is good. It, it is held annually at the end of April. So this year it's a three-day sale from April 27th. That's a Thursday, 28th and 29th. And really kind of the go-to site for you folks, to, you could just type in springaffair.org or you could go to our main website, which is plantnebraska.org. All sorts of great information there from maybe you want to be a vendor and the vendor um, um, deadline for signing up is this Friday, but they would they would accept somebody after the deadline. So maybe you want to be a vendor. Maybe you want to volunteer for Spring Affair. And we we have lots of volunteer opportunities, but there, there's only about 20 slots left. So people volunteer and the volunteer is fun because you meet new friends, like minded people, you know, plant nerds like ourselves. Uh, so volunteering is fun. But and and like Stephanie has done, she signed up for the preview sale, which is kind of like, uh, you know, first dibs. Right. Yeah. You, your plant's going to be there. Right. You don't have to worry about it being sold out because this is a consignment sale, folks. It's a fundraiser for our organization. But the goal is to sell out, because if we don't sell out, then we have to pay for them to take the plants back. Literally a restocking fee. If oh, you I will. didn't so, know about you know, that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so okay. our goal is to sell out. And, and, you know, so, you know, if you if you order a bunch of plants and there's a lot left over, well, that just that costs us, you know, so it, it kind of detracts from being a fundraiser. So that's why if you get frustrated coming, well, my plant's gone, just rest assured what you were looking for is likely available at our regular plant sales, which we have either on campus and and we come to Omaha every year. Uh, we come to the extension office. And this year, I'll have to look here. It is on May 13th, Saturday, May 13th at the uh, extension office there off Center Street. And that is uh, a nine till noon sale on May 13th. And then we'll be back at Fontenelle in June. And that will be June 17th. Again, another nine till noon sale. So we will be coming to Omaha with a, a good variety of, of native plants and, and other plants too. We don't call ourselves native purists by any stretch because, you know, we live in cities now, not prairies, right? So uh, rest assured the plants we pick out for these things uh, are drought tolerant, easy, no fuss plants, you know, that are, you know, that offer some benefit as well. That's awesome. I want to backtrack just a tiny bit. Um, mm -hmm. I want to ask you about the spring affair event, because I know, you know, at the Arboretum, they don't just sell, you know, native wildflowers or native grasses. There's also some non-native stuff in there. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to double check with you, like when someone goes to this event, um, are there signs that kind of point out what's native and what's not native or how would someone kind of navigate finding that out? Yeah, that's a good question. And Stephanie, I, yeah, you kind of caught me going, I'm not sure because in the past, what we've done is we've put a little, um, oh, uh, a, a little sticker 
on because we have plant information signs with each one. So yeah, your question has spurred me. I'm going to definitely ask that and say, are we doing that again? Because obviously it's a wise choice in doing that. So we we hope to mark the ones that are native with a mm -hmm. little a little sticker that says, you know, and what we say when we say native folks is more of a regional sense for us because mm -hmm. Eastern Iowa is uh, Western Iowa, I'm sorry, is much more native to uh, the Lincoln Omaha area than North Platte will ever be. I think so it's interesting. Kind of I was I was talking to a gal. I can't remember if it was from Prairie Plains Institute um, or another organization or another nursery, but she was telling me how it's ethical to plant within a 200 mile radius because, you know, in a way, local is regional, just right. depending on how far regional you're talking about. Exactly. So, right. you know, people come and join our group, the Bellevue Native Plant Society, and they live in Council Bluffs or they live in Elkhorn or they live in Lincoln. We have members in Lincoln. And they're right. always concerned at first. They're like, well, if you're talking about what to plant in Bellevue, like how do, you know, that probably isn't going to be the same for what to plant in Lincoln or what to plant in Council Bluffs or Carter Lake, but it actually is. I mean, yes, um, local doesn't yes. have to be super, super exact. Exactly. And these, the, the research there is just like the best estimate of, you know, you know, going back through the data and it's kind of hard to say for sure 100%. Oh, you know, this was in this county, but the next county right. over, nope, it was never there. Right. Majority of those plants, if you look up their native range on the map, you know, they, they're they throughout eastern Nebraska. You know, it's it's few and far between those species that are very regulated to a few counties, right? And mm -hmm. especially us as close to each other as we are. Yeah, the, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very similar. And what I tell people too, is if you think about it, if you're going with local ecotype seed, if you want, no, it's got to be native to Nebraska from seed collected from a native prairie in Nebraska. Just consider this in the Eastern third of the state where tall grass prairie occurred, one tenth of 1% of that prairie exists. Yeah. So if we just did local ecotype from one tenth of 1% of what exists, that's a pretty small gene pool in my, in my book. Yeah, and I know Kay, Kay was just on the show and she was talking about how it's it's hard for them to source seed from remnant prairies because remnant prairies are so rare. Exactly. And yeah, it's tough. And kudos to Kay for doing that because, yeah, she's trying to preserve those genetics, which is critically important, right? I mean, when they're gone, they're gone. Yeah, yeah. so you have to preserve those genetics. And, you know, and I've talked to Doug Tallamy before, should I be concerned about, say, ironweed, for example, we have Western ironweed and Baldwin's ironweed native to Nebraska, but there's also Missouri ironweed, Arkansas ironweed, New York ironweed. So I asked him, if I'm growing New York ironweed in my garden, should I be concerned that I'm doing pollinators a disservice based on the timing of the bloom? And I've grown all five of those in vicinity of each other, and they all bloom around the same time. So he said, no, the insects are opportunists, right? Especially the generalists. You have to start considering concerning yourself with specialist bees and specialist pollinators. Mm -hmm. And those are rare in home gardens anyway, right? They're, if I'm doing a preservation planting like K. Cotus would might be doing, or Prairie Plains Resource Institute might be doing, by all means, local ecotype is critical. But for the home gardener, I don't think you have to overthink it. Yeah, I honestly, and I'm I'm in the pool of people where I think if we're really trying to create habitat, that is infinitely better than yeah. just having a sterile lawn, no, exactly. no nothing for anything. 
I really do try to focus on what's native here because there's honestly so much of it. Right. Um, but I think, you know, I'm, I definitely don't fall in the purest uh, pool of people. I think they always say, like, keep it simple, right? Because the more right. difficult you make something, the less likely someone is to do it. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about how you started really getting passionate about native wildflowers. I know you said you inherited that wildflower garden um, and you started caring for that. Probably started with Farrar's book, John Farrar's book, Wildflowers of Nebraska. John Farrar worked for the Game and Parks and probably came out with the first reference guide that we could all follow. And I, and I've, for me, they were native to Nebraska, but yet why haven't I bumped into them? Why don't I see them when I'm driving down the road? Or, and then because back then I didn't realize, oh, because all the prairies have been plowed up, right? There's, you know, so these plants are out there, but where? And and these remnant prairies are rare, right? So for me, it was almost like discovering a new plant, but yet a new plant that had been right under your nose the whole time. I mean, not literally right under your nose, because where are they, right? So. For me, I came intrigued that, wow, these are really beautiful plants. Why aren't we planting these in the garden? Quite honestly, back when I was doing it, it was more like that sense of place. It was more about, well, these these plants are what our ancestors bumped into when they came here. Why aren't we do, continuing to have these in our gardens? Because you think about the ancestors that came here probably weren't planting those wildflowers in their garden. They were going out in the prairie and maybe collecting a bouquet, right? And maybe putting it in their sati, but nobody was gardening with them because they were here. So they kind of took them for granted. And then once the prairies were all plowed up, then we gardening people that maybe knew iris or peonies or hostas or just any old garden plant USA, when I started planting the wildflowers, I learned man, these things are super cool, super beautiful. Yeah, I I think I've really become addicted to seeing all the pollinators and all the interesting insects and hummingbirds come right. in. Um, and I know I've become addicted to like the bloom time uh, structure of it all. You know, when you were talking about peonies or iris or, uh, you know, lilac or anything like that. But when you use a lot of wildflowers in your landscape, you're still kind of getting that unique succession of bloom times all throughout right. the year. But it's it's like, it's it's always surprising to me because I go out and it's almost like I'm not expecting it all. It's, it's always a new surprise to me every time I go outside. I'm like, oh yeah, that's blooming right now. Oh yeah, these are still blooming. And then all throughout the year, it's constantly changing. This one's done, but this one's starting. And it's just amazing. And it makes you appreciate the seasons so much more. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head is it it gets you out to visit your garden because most people think, well, I don't have time for gardening. I don't like weeding and blah, blah, blah. And it's like this type of gardening will invite you out there as kind of a movie scene. And Aldo Leopold called it in his book, A Sand County Almanac, which is a great read if you haven't read it. Um, a Prairie Birthday is what he called it because you better go out there each day because it's it's dynamic. It changes daily. Oh, nice. I love that. I love that so much. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, you're kind of denying yourself uh, a kind of free ticket to just an annual color show. Yeah, it's just, you know, you can I can go out on my front porch, I've got a bench there. And sometimes me and my daughter, me and my mom, we just go and we sit out there. And it's perpetually entertaining. Uh, and we don't have to we don't have to pay some admission right, fee to right. go see it. Um, 
yeah, if you create a garden or you create a, a meadowscape or whatever you want to call it, a, a native planting or a pollinator habitat or whatever name we could throw on it, you're basically creating a, a scene for yourself right. where you and your family or you and your cat or whatever, you can go sit out and just enjoy nature you're for right. free, which yeah, I love. I mean, or nearly free, you know, some right, of us right. spend way too much money on plants, especially at the spring <laughs> right. fair, you know, we get a little crazy. Yeah, keep your but, wallet in your pocket. But, people. you know, as close to free as we can get it. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, so tell us a little bit about your Wednesday radio show. I was listening to an episode of you and Ben Vote um, talking about, um, you know, how to get uh, like a home landscape ready for planting. Yeah. So could you tell us more about, about what yeah, you do there? Yeah, um, I host a, a gardening talk show on our local Lincoln radio station called KZUM. KZUM is 89.3 on your FM dial. However, you it's a community radio station. So driving from Lincoln to Omaha, you'll lose it at around the Platte River, maybe a little before. But you can tune in online at kzum.org. Heck, you can put it on now and you'll be listening to some good jazz. So it's a great station just for its music. Uh, but they allowed me to have a gardening show on there. I've been doing it gosh, since 2000. So going in, into year 23 now, and it's an hour long uh, talk show, call in live talk show. So you can call in with questions if you want. Um, yeah, I invite you to tune in every Wednesday, 11 till noon. The shows are archived. So the last two weeks are archived in there. But and then you can go on to uh, one of the drop downs on the KZUM website, kzum.org. It lists uh, podcasts. So if you click on podcasts, you'll see podcasts for various shows, including How's It Growing. So you can check out some past episodes that way as well. Uh, prairie wildflowers for the seasons. I thought it would be fun to kind of pick your brain. Um, sure. Like if I'm asking, like if I'm someone who's, you know, kind of, I'm hanging out at the spring affair. And I'm like, hey, Bob, I really want something that's spring blooming. What would you recommend? My go-to for shade uh, that I really like is wild geranium. Mm. Love that plant. Wild geranium is an unsung hero. I think it should be in every garden. It's so easy. You might get a few seedlings uh, seeding around welcoming. Uh, uh, if, if they do seed, yay, because you're going to love the plant so much. You're going to say, man, I take a hundred of these. It blooms uh, very dependably. The emerging foliage, I think, is very attractive in the spring. Um, and, and the flower is a, a pretty, what, violet uh, mm -hmm. color, maybe only about 18 inches tall, well-behaved, um, just, a, just a dynamite uh, spring blooming plant. I would say May, sometimes like early to mid-May, something like that. The earliest kind of the harbinger of spring though is pasque flower. That's that's mm -hmm. my choice for full sun. And pasque flower is a native plant to Nebraska folks, but if you look up its, its uh, native range, it's like in two counties in Nebraska, right? And so it's a rare bird in Nebraska. You're not going to be able to just drive around and find a pasque flower. So it's up to right. us to plant it in our gardens and it's a phenomenal and it, and flower so beautiful it is and you know it likes it high and dry you just have to be cognizant about where you're planting it don't mm. plant it in, in the midst of a sprinkler system don't overwater it it doesn't need help from you just plant it in good well-drained soil and and get it established and then don't baby it it'll be fine and what i found stephanie is that past flower blooms early in the season oftentimes by late april mid to late april um, I would plant some a warm season bunch grass near it. Mm. So by the time July and August hits, that grass is kind of shading that plant a little bit. So if we run into really dry, hot weather in July and August, 
Did I just say if? Okay, when we run into <laughs> hot, dry weather, July and August, given. the plant gets some, yeah. So so you can kind of create those microclimates with little part shade by letting another plant shade that plant when it's kind of in its, I don't want to call it dormant state, but just kind of not doing much in July and August. I love that tip. Yeah. Yeah, and your bunch grass could be little blue stem. There you go. I was just about to ask. I was going to say, okay, so what bunch grass would you recommend if someone was like, I want to try that. That's a good idea. Yeah. Little blue stem, blue grama, uh, uh, prairie dropsy. They all, all, those three are really good for that. You could do a, you know, side oats grama, any of the shorter uh, prairie grasses is, is a good thing to put Nesca pass flower. Another one I really love is prairie smoke. Yes. Prairie smoke can be kind of persnickety sometimes to get established. I've seen great patches of prairie smoke. Others struggle with getting it going. Um, I think it likes well-drained soil and, you know, good moisture to get it established, but then you can kind of back off. Prairie smoke's not one of those not quite native to Nebraska plants. It's yeah. a Minnesota, South Dakota, North Dakota, but man, it, it, it's close enough type of native. Uh, it blooms right around the same time as past flower in, uh, in early spring. It's so beautiful too. Just the little wispy, you know, tendrils that kind of, I don't know what you would call that kind of drift down. Just phenomenal. I know a lot of us in our group compete to get it because it, it seems like it's kind of harder to find. So I know like, yeah, we kind of compete with each other. It flies off the shelf. Yeah, it's hard to hold on to. Pass flower as well. But one I want you guys to consider that, man, I think should be in every garden too. When people think of spiderwort or tritoscantia, oftentimes they get a little, ah, I don't want that plant. It's it's too invasive or whatever. They're thinking of a species that came from out east, the Virginia spiderwort, Tritoscantia virginiana. That one gets more like, oh, two feet tall. That kind of gave, gave all the other spiderworts a bad name because it tended to flop in the garden. It tended to seed around too much. It spread, blah, blah, blah. But we have a native one called dwarf spiderwort, uh, Tritoscantia tharpii. And another name is Tharps spiderwort. That's T-H-A-R-P. So if you Google it, Tharps spiderwort is kind of north central Kansas native. That's the source we have from. So think of Marysville, Kansas, just south of Beatrice, um, that area. Anyway, it's a, a cute little wildflower. I've seen them flowers on them three inches high and the flowers two inches across. So it's a sizable spiderwort flower and they come in kind of a multitude of colors. I've seen light lavender. I've seen like a oh, rich uh, coral, kind of a coral pink, um, uh, almost a, a dark blue. And Harlan Hammernick from Bluebird Nurseries, who brought it to the trade, but we, the statewide arboretum, collected the seed down there in north central Kansas and brought it into the trade and released it as a great plant for the Great Plains, uh, oh gosh, a number of years ago, back in the early 2000s. It still hasn't caught on by gardeners because people are afraid of it. But what I found, Stephanie, it's it's a it's a a spiderwort that comes up, blooms early in the season, like we're talking late April, and then it slowly but surely goes dormant. And it goes dormant and it's like people are like, well, why would I want a plant that goes dormant? Well, think of daffodils, think of tulips, mm -hmm. right? They go dormant. Mm -hmm. Everybody gives them a break. Why not give dwarf spiderwort a break? So it'll come up, it'll bloom and it'll seed around nicely for you. And it's such a small little plant, six by six inches. My attitude is, man, you seed where you want to seed. You know, what I would find is maybe it would seed next to a, a big old goldenrod. 
And I would just leave it there because I knew, you know, you're going to get along fine with this goldenrod. You'll come up, you'll bloom early in the spring, and then you'll just kind of go dormant. The goldenrod will come up mm. behind you and, and do its thing. So, man, put that on your wish list. Uh, it's a it's an awesome little prairie wildflower that just really goes overlooked and underutilized. And you, you said that one is Tharps spiderwort. Yeah, thar Tharps spiderwort. Because I've or heard dwarf of spiderwort. I've heard of you know Ohio spiderwort is probably the one that right. that's sold a lot the most or that we talk about the most. And then I've heard of now prairie right. prairie spiderwort. So I've got to yeah, go kind of compare right. those together. Yeah, you have you have your uh, Ohio spiderwort, which Oh, I see in nature more like Valentine area. If you ever canoe the Niobrara River, that's the one you'll see up there. It, it's more like a knee-high uh, fella, and it and it blooms at a sky blue flower, right? It's it's a gorgeous plant and and well worthy, and the pollinators love it. It's got its own little issues, if you will. I mean, it seeds around too much for some people. I welcome it seeding around. I I've had it bloom in places I never would have planted it. You know, I never would have stuck a plant between a proverbial rock and a hard place. But if my spider wants to bloom there and give me color, you know, I got thumbs up. Uh, so the Ohio, and then there's there's another one called Western Spiderwort, which is more of a Western Nebraska native. That's Tritoscantia occidentalis. Mm. And then there's another one here in the East, Tritoscantia uh, bracteata or the bracted spiderwort. Yeah, they're all good. So shifting back to flowers for the seasons, because I feel mm -hmm. like we we gave a good oh, few yeah, yeah. examples of spring. What are some ones for summer? Right, right. To me, purple poppy mallow. I mean, that's, man, it's, it should be in every garden. It's such a nice plant. So easy. You know, it, it it's it's a weaver, what I call a weaver. It'll kind of weave in between the taller plants, or you can use it to mm -hmm. spill over a retaining wall or in between a rock and a hard place. It, it's just an easy, easy plant and, you know, gorgeous plant. You can't go wrong with it. I, I love the purple cone flower, you know, um, everybody, most people know the purple cone flower, but don't just stop with purple cone flower. It's got a few cousins that you have to consider like the pale purple cone flower mm -hmm. for the hottest, driest, sunniest areas you have. It is so tough. Um, and then the Coreopsis, I can't leave the Coreopsis out of this. I love the Another name for Coreopsis is tick seed. And I thought tick seed, mm -hmm. who would name a plant tick seed? Well, if you look at the seeds, they kind of look like a tick, hence the name. Mm -hmm. So there's stiff Coreopsis, woefully overlooked. There's lance leaf Coreopsis. Uh, these are kind of your late spring uh, bloomers, if you will. By the time we're in June, everybody kind of shrugs their shoulders and considers June summer anyway, right? And then mm -hmm. you've got your penstemons, you know, you can't wrong with uh you know smooth penstemon or shell leaf penstemon love the penstemons um those are a good group and then you know of course you've got your black-eyed susans that most people are familiar with uh, i can't go wrong with the summer bloom in my mind with the black-eyed susans and there's a number of different ones out there i would mm -hmm. encourage you to look into a black-eyed susan called sweet coneflower Sweet yes. coneflower is Rudbeckia subtomatosa. So this is a black-eyed Susan that gets five feet tall and blooms a little later than the others, but they you can make a tea out of it, hence the name sweet, sweet coneflower. Oh, okay. And when that plant freezes in the fall and by the time November runs around and, and uh, the plants all turn brown and whatnot, if you walk by it, you're going to smell something sweet in the air. So as it dries down, that sweet scent, kind of like sweet grass when you dry it. I, I cut some of it because I figured out, what am I smelling so sweet? And I walk by that patch, it's the sweet coneflower, huh? 
that's where you get your name. So I cut some of it back, put a bundle in my shade house. And the shade house is 40 by 70 feet. I walked in there the next day and the whole house smelled of that delicious sweetness. So sweet coneflower is one to put on your wish list for a summer bloomer. You know, and another one, Stephanie, that's so uh, not planted is Canadian milk vetch or Canada milk vetch. Such an easy plant, great pollinator plant. Um, it's a good one to combine with, with the bee balms. I love wild monarda or wild bee balm. Those two together are like so delicious. Uh, you got to do it. So bee balm and uh, for kind of your August bloomer, if you will, and the pollinators clamor over it. And of course, I can't keep out uh, the milkweeds, right? Like butterfly milkweed for a summer bloomer or swamp milkweed for more of a wet area. On and on. I love, I love the fragrant milkweeds. Uh, I was really surprised when I learned that, you know, some have that very, very sweet, romantic love, sort of fragrance. Yes. And that was a nice surprise. Yeah. In other words, if you could bottle that and make a perfume out of it, you'd be rich, yes. right? It smells like yes, because <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, I actually have the the sweet black eyed Susan. I've got oh, that dear, in good. a beautiful spot behind my house where it gets it gets some part day sun. Um, it can handle a little bit of shade. It seems not like deep shade, right. but it gets you know half half day sun, half day a little shady. Cool. And it's phenomenal because it's just a profuse bloomer. Um, it's really tall, so you can't miss it. Right. Um, and I think it's one of those good ones where you can plant it in the back of a border, have some other things in front of it. They're a little bit shorter yep. or, you know, woodier for structure. And then right. it just, it shines. It's, it's awesome. It's so that's awesome one of my plant. favorites, actually. Yeah, I recommend the, it all the time. For sure. Yeah. I like, uh, I like how you described, uh, purple poppy mallow i feel like its growth pattern is kind of similar to wild petunia uh because i have some wild but i had both of them but i've got some wild petunia in the front yard and that one kind of just winds its way through everything and and takes advantage of any empty space there is right <laughs> you have empty space i'll find it yeah, yeah exactly think, well, how do i get rid of it it's like why would you want to do that you know it's like an easy plant heck you can mow it to two inches and it'll still bloom have you found the purple yet? poppy mallow? No, the uh, wild petunia. Oh, the wild petunia too. Yeah. So that's interesting. I wonder if it could be included in like a bee lawn oh, for um, sure. scenario then. Not a doubt. Yeah. I saw, I saw some, uh, I went to Fontenot Forest with my kids last year and I saw that they had added purple poppy mallow in to like their actual oh, like, really? lawn areas. Cool. cool. Because it withstands mowing. Right. So good to know that I can try that with wild petunia too. That sounds fun. Do you want me to talk about fall bloomers real quick? I think a good way to ask you this would be kind of like hitting on two different talking points at once, because I wanted to ask you, you know, what are some things that stand out to you for fall time, but also know at the same time, like that's kind of a good opportunity to talk about some really standout native grasses Right. Um, so it's kind of a two-part question. What are some things you'd recommend for fall and minding that? What are some grasses you'd like to bring up? Yeah, for sure. You know, real quickly with the grasses, you know, little blue stem is the star of the show. That's our state grass. That's what Willa Cather talked about, that the prairies seem to be on fire, but not burning. Mm. That was the, the fiery color of, of little blue stem in the fall. She also called it shaggy grass country because it looks like 
like something you want to go out and pet like a shaggy dog. So you got little blue stem, uh, prairie drop seed. I love it in the fall with its wispy seed heads that kind of have this this interesting, cool smell to them. I don't know if you've ever smelled the prairie drop seed before yet when it's in. in I haven't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So next time you see a bunch of prairie drop seed and seed, walk up to it. Sometimes you can smell it from a distance away, but kind of cup a bunch of seed heads in your hand and smell it. Oh, it's, it's a wonderful smell. And if you look it up online, they'll say smells like buttered popcorn. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I didn't get buttered popcorn. Others say smells kind of like cilantro. No, I don't. It smells like prairie drop seed. It's, it, but it's a nice smell. Um, yeah. So, so, and I love the big blue stem, uh, fall color, you know, the, the russet reds and then the switch grasses, there's lots of good cultivars out there. Well-behaved cultivars of switch grass and they turn and Indian grass turns it kind of an orangish, orangish red, whereas the switch grass turns more of a, a yellow. So you can really get different contrasting colors with those grasses in amongst your flowers, you know, your typical fall flowers. There's so many different asters to choose from that you have to have oh, at least yes. one in your garden. You have to have at least one type of goldenrod in your garden because folks, we have eight species of goldenrod native to Nebraska and probably at least eight species of asters native to Nebraska. So mm -hmm. the sky's the limit just on those two um, for a fall garden. Um, and then another one that, that people are discovering is called wild senna. And wild scent is kind of a late summer, early fall type bloomer. Uh, and uh, man, it's it's such an easy plant to grow and pollinators clamor over it. Uh, bumblebees especially really love it. And uh, so, yeah, that's a, three good fall bloomers. I haven't I tried the I haven't tried the wild senna yet. Um, where like what would be an ideal space to plant that in like what kind yeah. of soil or sun requirements does you know it's need? not it's not picky as to soil type i think it's very adaptable soil type i think it would take your heavy clay or dry well drained it ends up it's probably a four feet foot four foot tall plant and with these pinnately compound leaves that almost look like uh, a honey locust leaf if you will on a mm. honey locust tree Mm. I think they're very attractive. It's in the pea family, so it, it's a legume, so it will mm -hmm. add some nutrients to your soil. And the flowers, I think, are unique. There's these yellow flowers that have black anthers, and I can't think of too many flowers. Maybe a yellow tulip has black anthers in the middle of it, right? But few flowers in between have black anthers. Well, this one does, and it's what we call a buzz-pollinated plant, so only a bumblebee can pollinate it because they have that bzz, bzz when they when they're they're landing on a flower and they kind of vibrate their wings to get the pollen to drop out. Oh, and okay. It's got interesting seed pods winter long. Um, not only interesting, but very attractive. So yeah, put it on your wish list, Stephanie. And it can go kind of the back of the border. Um, it will seed around, but um, and I've heard people kind of complain about that, but I'm like, dude, you have you've had months to remove those seed heads before they start dropping and getting it. So it's your fault that it's seeding around, not the plants. Um, but yeah, easy, easy plant, very drought tolerant, very uh, uh, low maintenance. Watch it do its thing. So it would do well in my full sun. Oh, for sure. Uh, assaulted garden. Yeah. Awesome. Yep, yep. Awesome. Good to know. Just remember, that one, four feet tall. The the flower on that one, is that somewhat similar to like, I don't, I can't visualize it right now because I don't know much about it, but isn't it similar to like partridge pea flowers? Yes. Am yes. I thinking correctly? You are. Okay. That is a partridge pea cousin. Yep. I'm glad you mentioned Oh, 
Oh, yep. well, that makes sense. Yep. I Because I've seen that. I've seen partridge pea a lot and people ask about it a lot. Yeah. So that's yeah, good to know. Now I've learned plant, a little bit. Yeah. Gorgeous plant, but very aggressive, right? The partridge pea yeah. seeds are aggressively. So that's why you often see it at roadside plantings. But yeah, it's a partridge okay. pea, if I remember right, is a senna as well. And I've heard about Jerusalem artichoke too, being kind of aggressive, but obviously good because it's edible. Do you know much right. about that one? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seemed to me you asked, okay, you're into wild edible plants, Bob. What are, what are some native plants that you like for wild edible purposes, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's one of them. And, uh, you know, I've never offered it for sale because I don't want people coming back yelling at me that it took over yeah. the garden. <laughs> and yeah, that's the only reason. I mean, it, they also call them sunchokes. And either way, the name's stupid. Jerusalem, they're not from Jerusalem and they're not an artichoke. I can't remember. <laughs> I think I, I looked up. I looked up where it got its name. I can't quite remember. Sunchokes, not much better. But basically, it's a sunflower that has tubers underground. And those tubers, um, if you Google uh, sunchokes, um, you know, information about them, uh, they're very nutritious, first of all. Um, they have, I think, a chemical called inulin. So for diabetes sufferers, or something about the plant for inulin and diabetes sufferers, but I can't quite remember. It's worth yeah. looking up that plant to just to find out more out about it. Um, I harvest it in the spring. Well, first I harvest it in the fall. It has two seasons. You can wait until the plant freezes back and all the energy goes back into that tuber and then dig it up like you would a potato and, and cook it like you would a potato. Um, and then in the spring right now, before the plant uh, breaks dormancy and comes up, it's the best time to, to go out because... If you're a vegetable gardener like me, I'm sorry, you're not harvesting any lettuce yet, right? You're not getting anything right. out of the garden. But you could go out there and say, well, what am I going to have tonight? Oh, yeah, I'll just, I could go dig up a few sunchokes. And they're just mm. fun, a fun plant. And I have mine confined, Stephanie, in a uh, retaining wall type setting. So it's it's only growing in like a three by mm. three foot uh, and surrounded by, it, it can't go anywhere. It's stuck yeah. there. And, and then I just pick them all up, harvest them, and then replant. Yeah, too, when you say, like, it's good to go harvest them now just because you're not harvesting much else. I'm thinking about it, too. Like, that's a good way to thin them out to kind of keep them under control. You leave a little bit Bingo. to kind of get going again, but then you're able you to harvest it. all the rest and eat it. Yeah. That's exactly why I do it, it. Exactly. You know it. In fact, I'm sitting here thinking as we're talking, I better be getting that done here sooner than later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've never I've I, never tried them, but I think I'm going to this year. Uh, I think I'm going to dig some up and, and cook the plant them. may come back to save us because I remember finding some article um, for soil um, restoration projects. So say uh, there was a mining company or some some uh, something that contaminated the soil where we can't develop it. You can't do anything there because of what took place prior some EPA contaminated zone, blah, blah, blah. Somebody actually planted that plant um, to help absorb all those nasty uh, chemicals uh, and render them useless. And they found that sunchoke for building soil is like a number one. So say you're in a new development in Omaha and uh, if anybody is listening from West Omaha, they know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, do we have clay? Not that you're going to be planting wall-to-wall -wall sunchokes in your yard to build the soil, 
but I just see it as in the future when we're kind of throwing our hands in the air going, what are we going to do to build our soil back up? We've depleted it so much through our agricultural mm. practices and whatnot. Uh, what can we plant to help build that soil? Obviously, a diverse prairie mix is a number one, but oftentimes what leads to these projects taking place is whoever's bidding the project, they want they want simple, right? And they want you know, monocultures and blah, blah, you know, that type of thing. So mm -hmm. it's just really a, an interesting plant that's got a, a rich history and, you know, Native Americans used it. Uh, certainly our colonists used it because they were taught about it from the Native Americans. So yeah, cool plant. And it's a sunflower. So pollinators love it too. Yeah. What's, what are some other native edibles that you've been curious about or that you've learned about? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, another one is Solomon seal. So look up Solomon seal oh. as uh, like uh, Solomon seal edible root or whatever, or Solomon seal for food. And the root of the Solomon seal can be used for food and or medicine. Now, Native Americans mainly used it for just a snack item. So if they are out and about uh, hunting, doing whatever, gathering something else, and they, they needed a snack or just, you know, quench their thirst because the root has a lot of moisture in it. And I've dug it up before peeled it, kind of looked at it and said, okay, I, I heard you're edible. I know you're edible. Here it goes. <laughs> so I, so I sampled some and it was actually rather tasty, a, a kind of a crisp texture. Think of a jicama type texture. If you know that, uh, um, that thing you can buy at the store, I call it a oh, thing. Okay. You know what, you know what I'm saying? The jicama or jicama. Yeah. <laughs> or, right, or think of water chestnut, that type of thing. Yeah. So Solomon seal for medicine, Oh my word, you guys, it's the cat's meow for medicine. And we've made a, oh. a salve out of it or a tincture and an oil-based tincture because Solomon Seal, the name Solomon Seal is named after King Solomon. So the Solomon Seal is native to China too. It has been used in Chinese medicine for centuries. So I was curious, can I, can the native one as well be used for that? And yes, it can. And uh, yeah, so it's mainly for stiff joints as an herbalist friend told me, it will loosen what's tight and tighten what's loose is kind of the, the verbiage they use for Solomon seal. So look it up, Solomon seal, medicinal benefits, Solomon seal is food stuff. I had no idea it had medicinal or edible qualities. I yeah. never would have and, guessed and, that. I'm sure it's in one of the books I have. Oh, um, for sure. And, if it's, not, and if it's not, you got an encyclopedia right in front of you right now, right? And and that's yeah. that's kind of my big kick now is if I can't convince people to plant wildflowers for their inherent ecological value, maybe I can get them convinced for the human uses that we can use them for. Mm. Um, let's see, there was another one. Oh, and Solomon seal is it's emerging in the spring and coming up those those young shoots before the leaves unfurl. You can snip it off at the ground and it'll come back. A new shoot will come back and you can just snack on that stem. It tastes like snow peas. I kid you not. Interesting. I wonder if that translates to Solomon's plume too, because I didn't even know about Solomon's plume. And I know those are two, you know, pretty closely related. Right. And so I wonder if that translates. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, you'll have to look into that because it seems to me I, I had thought the uh, Solomon's plume, I think the other name is false Solomon seal, right? Oh. <laughs> I think, right? Hmm. Well, if it's not. I'm uh, not sure. That one I haven't tried yet, and I would say stick to the Solomon seal for now until you do more research like you're planning mm -hmm. on doing. The spiderwort we were talking about, Ohio spiderwort, is a green you can eat. The flowers are perfectly edible. 
Um, I didn't know so, that either. Yeah, let's throw out another one. Purple poppy mallow. Purple poppy mallow, the whole plant's edible. Roots, leaves, flowers. So if you want to do a yeah. Martha Stewart moment, maybe you're having friends over for a potluck and you want to press them with your the salad you made and you want to color it up. And most people think of, you know, um, violets or whatever, any edible flower. They don't taste like anything, I can tell you. I mean, they're tasteless, but it's pretty. And yeah. the, the leaves, if you ever eat a leaf of a, and I want to see you do that this summer when your purple poppy mallow is doing its thing, leafing out. Let's try it. Pluck a leaf off and pop it in. You'll go, well, it's just kind of green. It's just kind of boring. But you'll also notice a slickness to it. There's mucil mucilaginous uh, compound in there. And that, that mucilagin helps thicken things. So think of okra. And what did the Southern folks, some people hate okra because of the, the slime, if you will, they call it. That's mucilaginous juice. And mucilaginous mm. juice coats and soothes your digestive system, first of all. So it's good for you. But that that uh, mucilaginous juice is kind of, uh, oh, it, it's a, a drought tolerant thing. So the plant will put it in there to to increase the, oh, so it, the water doesn't transpire as easily out of the plant. Mm, so Water retention. So, okay. Yeah, water. Yeah, that's what I was trying to find out. So they would add that Native Americans would add the leaves to soup as a thickener. And then the root they would dig in the mm. fall. And so the root, when the plant was dormant, they would dig it. It has a big tuber or a big taproot, you know, a huge taproot. You dig that thing up in the fall and then you cut the top of the plant off and replant it. If you've ever harvested horseradish, for example, that's what you do. You you, you dig up your horseradish plant and then you you replant the top part of it and it re-roots and all that. So horseradish people have known that for years. You can do the same thing with purple poppy mallow. I've eaten mm -hmm. the root raw. And it's much like you would eat potatoes raw. You know, some people do that. I don't, right? But you certainly can eat these raw, but Native Americans more than likely roast them over an open fire or boil them. Uh, yeah. And that's just three of them. Then if you want to talk teas, man, you've got lead plant tea. You've got uh, wild bee balm tea. You've got mountain mint tea. All three of those make great teas. Um, so yeah, the sky's the limit. And, and you know, Pretty much every native plant that you can talk about, our, our Native Americans had a use for them, whether it was ceremonial, mm -hmm. medicinal, or food stuff. Yeah, and I was talking to a lady, too, um, at our seed chair. I was telling her about goldenrod, you know, how you can use goldenrod for a natural dye. Yeah. Um, and she was asking me about indigo, and I had to look into it because I was like, you know, I've heard of, you know, the Asian indigo that's used to make those really rich, you know, blue pigments. Uh -huh. And I guess our native indigo, our native blue indigo can be used to make a, to make a blue pigment. I wouldn't um, doubt it. You know, yeah, and, it's fascinating. And, and I know we're getting into the weeds here, but that's a cool thing about wildflowers. They'll do that to you. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm glad you mentioned uh, goldenrod. Goldenrod scientific name is solidago. Solidago literally means to strengthen in Latin. Europeans, I told you that they brought it over there centuries ago and it's naturalized. Get this. I don't know where they learned it. You want to run down a rabbit hole, look at historical uses of goldenrod. Henry Ford was extracting something. He was extracting like a rubber type compound out of it. They were making tires out of goldenrod back in the day. They actually had a field of goldenrod outside of the fort, the factory there in Detroit, because that's what they were using before they found out rubber could come from the rubber tree. Wow. Um, pretty fascinating. 
we're going to have to have a whole episode on just historical uses of uh, some prairie plants or native plants, because that would be fascinating in and of itself, just to talk about that for a straight hour. (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, What would you say about rain gardens? Um, Because I know that's a topic that comes up frequently. Um, Are there certain plants you'd recommend for a rain garden scenario? Oh, for sure. You know, and Another thing I should mention is on our website, um, arboretum. Or actually, it's plantnebraska.org. I almost did our old URL, but plantnebraska.org. You can type in in the search and you know plants for rain gardens type of thing. Because because if you go online and just start searching for rain garden plants, you might get some plant list from Maryland or you know Minnesota or wherever Timbuktu anywhere USA. So so it's a good uh, a good list to go from. And what I found is, yeah, rain garden plants are lowland prairie plants. So you got prairies in Nebraska that were kind of upland or dryland prairies, I also call them. And then you have other prairies that kind of maybe grew near a creek or a river or a body of water. And when it was low, the land was low, meaning when we had rains, it didn't necessarily flood, but it stayed wetter longer than an upland would, right? So mm. so prairie plants grew naturally in those areas. That's what you're going to want to choose for your rain garden. And I say that because we call those mesic soils, and they're often, often uh, wet in the late winter, early spring, which, as you know, Nebraska's wet months are, are March, April, May, right? And then they tend to be dry in the summer. These plants are both wet tolerant and drought tolerant. And that's mm-hmm. what you kind of want to look for. And it's a big list of plants. And and what I tell people, if you're going to do a rain garden and you should, um, you know, basically it's a depression in the ground to capture the rainwater. And what the engineers want you to do is put a drain in there and have it drain within 24 hours. And um, I'm here to tell you that you want the, the reason you're putting in a rain garden is to clean the water before it it soaks all in and, and becomes in the storm water or becomes a part of the system. Well, the water's not going to get cleaned in 24 hours. It's not going to get cleaned in 12 hours. It takes time. So that water literally has got to sit there for a little while for those plants to absorb it and transpire it out and convert that waste into a usable form. And it's pretty fascinating how they do that. But most rain garden plantings say you get a four inch downpour and you can see standing water out your rain garden well that's going to drain within three days and another thing people are concerned about are mosquitoes and mosquitoes life cycle they need at least 10 days to go from larvae to adult mosquito so even if they lay eggs and and think they're going to get away with it the water is going to be gone by the time so you don't have to worry about the mosquitoes too. Mm. And just packing the plants in that rain garden, much like the scene you have behind you where there's no open ground, those plants are gonna mm-hmm. absorb that water, transpire that water and drink it up rather than some drain down below draining it. So be consider that and also consider that most wetland areas, not most, all wetland areas in Nebraska, lowland prairies had what we call native sedges in there. And that's the carex species um, not the yellow nut sedge that's a weed from Europe. Uh, native carrick species are bunch type grass looking plants that I see as a, a green mulch at the base of your rain garden. Uh, as you were saying earlier with grasses, they keep the weeds out. And that's what I'm after using the sedges as a, a green ground cover, if you will. And then those wildflowers will poke up between those those bunches and, and give you that pizzazz color as well. So um 
fun to do. And man, there's so many different flowers you can put in those areas as well. Yeah, I love the idea of of a rain garden being like kind of a twofold, uh, having a twofold purpose. Like one, it, it soaks up the rainwater, it helps filter it. Uh, but also too, it's interesting that, you know, we can kind of strategize, right? We can We can find an area that would be very, very ideal for that sort of thing. And then we get the benefit of experiencing those kinds of plants. Right. So it's kind of twofold. It, it cleans the water, it filters things, right. but also we get to enjoy the beauty of these plants thriving. Yeah. In other words, I may not have been able to grow these in my regular garden without bathing mm -hmm. it. And be, but I, because I put it in this rain garden, I'm like, cool, now I can grow this plant without mm -hmm. little effort, right? With very little effort. And man, yeah. I'm telling you, they are drought tolerant. And you know, these sedges that like it wet, for example, they can take standing water for three days, no problem, not bad and high. Um, but in 2012, uh, a bioretention swale, which is basically a ditch lined with rain garden plants, right, that would may lead to your rain garden. So that bioswale, I had sedges in there and a kid working for me goes, do you want me to flood irrigate it because we are having a serious drought, the 2012 drought? And I said, I'm really tempted to make it look good, but I'm also not going to learn anything if I water it. So I'm like, well, even mm. if they all up and die, at least I learned something. Much to my surprise, and there were cracks on the ground an inch wide next to those sedges. They all came back. They all mm. just shrugged their shoulders and said, we got this, Bob. Just just go away. Leave us alone. We got this. Yeah. Yeah. So really, really fun. And, you know, that's where pl plants like, oh, I've got written here, swamp milkweed, New England aster, the white mm -hmm. wild indigo. Um, Joe Pye weed, Helen's flower, or the uh, sneeze weed, um, yeah. blue flag iris, like you were saying, all these cool plants that might struggle in a regular garden. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, sky's the limit with rain gardens, folks. It's right. kind of a unique opportunity where, you know, if if we've got an area, like for instance, I've got an area on the side of my house where when they designed the patio, either it wasn't completely level when they installed it or just over time erosion has has made it kind of go downward in a way it shouldn't um mm -hmm. so all the storm water all the snow melt just kind of runs down into this area and it's a perfect opportunity to use some stuff that can tolerate it wetter but then in times of drought can also tolerate drought Right. Um, so that's where I'm putting all my kind of rain garden-ish plants. Awesome. I'm just going to take advantage of the uneven patio. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Don't fight it. And a lot of us have, you know, okay, I don't have an automatic ir irrigation system, for example, but my neighbor does and they water all the time and then their water flows under my property and I have this area that's always sopping wet. What can I plant mm -hmm. in there? Yeah, we get those questions a lot. And it's funny, we'll look at each other and go, a sedge. <laughs> and they're like nice. which one and it's fun because when you when you turn people on to the 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 functionality because they're they're workhorse plants right they're functional plants they're um they're not a, a a smiling pretty face like a pansy right or a daffodil uh but i still i think they're attractive in their own right and they've got attributes in their own right that really I mean, I could, I could, we could do a whole hour talk just on sedges. In fact, I've given an hour and a half talk just on sedges. <laughs> I can't remember the name of the sedge. I've used it in a design before, um, but I'm newer to sedges. It's, it's the sedge where it really gets kind of long tendrils and it kind of tends to flop over really aesthetically. 
it the, just makes uh, these the, beautiful the seed trips. heads. The seed heads kind of dangle. You mean? Or, uh, the, or the, leaves. the blades themselves. Oh, okay. Kind of yep. creates a fountain-like appearance. Yes. Yes. Uh, it could be fox sedge. Does that ring a bell? I want to say it's Pennsylvania sedge. Okay. But I could be wrong. Um, and that one might, I can't remember if that's regionally native or Nebraska native, but so many good looking ones. Yeah, believe it or not, Stephanie, it it does certainly get all the way to Iowa, even though it's called Pennsylvania sedge. I think if I remember right, looking it up, much to my surprise, it does okay. get to Nebraska as well. But Pennsylvania sedge is a short one. It's maybe only eight inches tall and it's a runner, meaning it'll spread slowly but surely. So it's often used as a lawn alternative uh, for people. And man, you could Google images of Pennsylvania sedge used in the garden and see the creative ways mm. people have used it in landscape designs. It's a great ground cover. I just think it's really attractive. Um, and I think I, I've seen some of those alternative grass mixes and the pictures do look really fantastic because the grass is kind of naturally, they're, they're shorter. It's not something you're gonna really have to wade through, but they've got this natural kind of, right. I just, it's it's got a beautiful drift yeah. sort of look to it that I really love. I'm glad you mentioned that because one thing I like about those, I've seen it with Buffalo grass, I've seen it with Pennsylvania sedge on a windy Nebraska day when it's that eight inches tall and kind of with that tassel look, the wind, it'll kind of do this you know, it it, it kind of has this whole different mm -hmm. look with the wind that then you won't get with anything. Yeah, it looks so natural. I mean, it's really, it's really welcoming. Right. Um, and it feels homey. Right. Yeah. Uh wow. I we've covered so many things today. To be to be honest, I have no idea how I'm going to edit this all because we've we've gone down so many rabbit holes, but it's good because we both get excited about that sort of stuff. And I know the people that listen in they're going to get excited about that sort of stuff too. So it's all good. Um, no doubt, the last no question is kind of, kind of in summation, like what's your takeaway for the, the native plants dialogue or, or what do you think is something, um, you know, kind of cut and dry about it that people should understand or people should know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Cut and dry thing about natives is, you know, these plants have been, you know, in Nebraska, the, People often say, what do I do? What about plants of the future with climate change, right? Do I need to be concerned? Do we need to start looking south from Texas and Oklahoma and things like that, or from really desert environments in order for plants to survive here? And I, my answer is always, no, go native, because native plants have seen a few droughts here. Yes, they may not have seen climate change, but there's there's records in the sandhills They've done core dating records where there's been 30-year droughts, people, 50-year mm. droughts. That's scary. <laughs> but good to know that the plants can can take it. Yeah. Right. And 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 you know, and and people went out. Uh John Weaver's a fellow that studied the prairie here at UNL, and he went out and scouting prairies after the Dust Bowl. So in the Dust Bowl, to put it in context, 2012 was kind of one of the years on record, even beating some Dust Bowl years. The problem is with the Dust Bowl is we we would have had 2010, 11, 12, 13, and 14 be all wow. the same 2012 drought, five years in a row. And you can imagine what that would do to our economy. You can imagine what that ever would be throwing. There'd be a lot more things to worry about than did my prairie plant make it, right? <laughs> but rest assured they would. 
And, and Weaver went through and walked the prairies after the Dust Bowl to see who was recovering first, who who lived through it. And it's pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, to, for me to put it in context, um, you see certain what prairie plants that I don't see this with others, uh, your conventional garden plants. And that's uh, the little insects, the unsung heroes. You know, everybody knows the bumblebee because they're cute and they're big and blah, blah, blah. But if you're watching a prairie plant, like you said, pulling up your, you know, your your remote control and your your seat, and you're sitting out there watching the movie, right? And of course, I'm joking. You're not exactly doing that. But if you've ever walked up to an aster or a goldenrod or uh, a different wildflower, where I, I say they're clamoring over it, like they look busy, they just look like rushed in a hurry, like, man, I, okay, there's a bumblebee. Oh, there's a wasp. Oh, there's a there's one of those brightly colored flies and oh what is that is that a little bee you know you can just do a quick assessment and go man I'm probably looking at 20 different species right on this plant so somehow some way even though you might be gardening in a food desert in the middle of Omaha and nobody else has a garden around you right which is most of us I'm sorry to say one in a hundred probably garden one in a hundred households maybe garden and those are people like you and I that can't live without plants. Some dude actually studied this and found that people have that inherent gene in them where they have to have plants around them. We are those garden nerds, that, right? So feel good about it. You got the gene. Uh, that's my takeaway on wildflowers is they invite a huge diversity of insects that conventional plants yeah. just won't. Now, that being said, you still see conventional plants attract mm -hmm. the little bees, too. So I'm not chastising anybody that has. I say yeah. there's room for both. We just need less lawn, less concrete, less asphalt, less rooftop. That's your competition, mm -hmm. folks, is asphalt, concrete, rooftops, corn, soybeans, yeah. turf grass. Don't, don't chastise your neighbor yeah, because they love I, hydrangeas is the way I look. I think, yeah. I think of the garden that I make as like a habitat for both me and my family and the pollinators, you know, and wildlife. It's, it's a space that yeah. I enjoy visually. Right. It's a space that basically provides life-saving food for pollinators. And, and I also like I, that, that phrase that we've heard in the, you know, frequently when, when we were kids and in the past is, uh, you know, if you build it, they will come. So it's, it's like, it's how I think of it, it, you know, we're That's not it. going to make any change in the ecosystem unless if we reintroduce this stuff, we just, we have to create, we have to create right. it. Um, cause unfortunately a lot of it's been right. taken away. Yeah. Quick story. I remember I would do these little uh, vignettes or whatever you want to call it, little little postage stamp prairie gardens when I worked at the fairgrounds. So maybe this little prairie garden was mm. six by six feet and maybe it has some big blue stem, Indian grass, switchgrass, mainly grasses in it, right? And then I, I found out, you know, we all know the lawn crickets, you know, the sound of the crickets at night. And it's that, it, oh, it's summertime. Everybody loves the, cric the crickets serenading us in summer. But drive by a native prairie at night or drive or walk by the prairie you created at night different crickets find it too you know the, the 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 insects that we don't see uh but you can hear it at night man are they having a party in there and and it's just katie did i don't know what i'm hearing uh, but i'm hearing something other than the typical lawn 
cricket. And it made me say when I was there, that's when I first noticed, how did they find this and, and why? So it's just really. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember right? you uh, to do like a, like we'll do like an out in the field recording or something in the fall. We'll just, we'll go out in the middle of yes. the night and I'll have some recording gear and we'll just record the sound of the right? insects at night. That would be really fascinating. I want you to yeah. pay attention to it though, because it doesn't have to be at night either, Stephanie. Uh, pay attention to it and you'll go, yeah, I never really noticed, but it is loud. It's like loud with 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 crickets mm. or whatever the heck mm. I'm hearing. A buzz. Yeah, I, I do like I do like going out in the garden in the summertime and there are so many bees around. And I think it's kind of that reminder to pay attention, right? Because a lot of us are flying through our lives and we're zipping here and we're zipping there. But when you're out weeding in the yeah. garden or, you know, you're you're cutting something back or whatnot, you're kind of encouraged to bend down low. And so many times, like, it's that because your ear is so close to the flowers, you can really hear, you feel so immersed in nature. So that's really addictive. But I'll have to, I'll have to listen for the crickets and stuff. I, yeah. when I think of the sounds of the garden, yeah, I just yeah. think of, out weeding you know and i kind of keep dipping my head down low to grab stuff and i hear all the bees sure but uh i'll have to i'll have to be more mindful to listen for the other stuff too yeah and honestly i haven't oh i haven't given it a whole lot of thought over the years you know like okay a prairie garden that features a lot of grasses versus one that doesn't you know blah 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 i'd, I'd have to talk to an entomologist someday and just see get their take on it mm. what am i hearing you know and 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 hope they say, oh, yeah, yeah, versus, well, I'm not really sure. It's like, come on, man, you're an entomologist. Okay, somebody be like Talamy here. Talamy did it for trees, right? He didn't. He hasn't really touched perennial flowers or or grasses. He's he's really focused on woody plants in his books, bringing nature home and whatnot. But we don't have an entomologist or somebody authoring a book that focuses on the critters in, in prairie plants um, yet. Mm. So if you are an entomologist and you are listening in, we are interested right. in this kind of research or this kind of documentation right. you have. Yes. Well, it was really great talking right. with you, Bob. Um, we talked about so many different things and it was Thank enjoyable. You. And I definitely want to have you back again and we'll kind of take a deep dive into some of these micro topics. That would be fun. You bet. Let's do it. You know, the, the wild edible plants thing, man, I'm, I'm all over that, you know, cause it could be, what can we use modern day, but give it a historical context as well and how it was used by native Americans for sure. I think I might've even talked about that a tiny bit in the first episode where we're kind of breaking down what native plants are just also keeping in mind that we're not only talking about of having something sustainable we're not just talking about having something aesthetically pleasing or not even just talking about creating habitat for critters but also we are inviting in plants that also have utility and i think that's something that's right. um it's starting to be talked about i think a little bit more but definitely an idea worth exploring and worth uh you know kind of re-educating ourselves on these things that people were educated on in the past and have just kind of been forgotten. Exactly. Yeah. Bring it back. That's my goal. Well, thank you again. It was a pleasure 
And I hope to chat your ear off at the spring affair soon. So that'll be a lot of fun. Well, looking forward to seeing you there, Stephanie. Good work on getting this going. Congratulations and keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, All Bob. Right, bye, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. If you need notes on anything mentioned in today's episode, check our website, plant-native-nebraska.captivate.fm. I want you to know you've made this podcast special just by listening in. But if you found real value in today's talk, subscribe to our show on your choice of podcast app to get easy access to future episodes. 